we live? I think so. Okay. I want to make sure that is the, the channels added correctly. I think we're live, but. Yep. Okay. I think we're live. All right. Sorry, everybody. This was a little technical, not a glitch, but, you know, just checking, make sure everything's running okay. Welcome to the VIT podcast. This is our third stream. And you guys know my name is Becco and Hari. Howdy. We are, uh, we are recording this on August 4th, uh, 2020. Uh, right now, where I sit, it is 7 a.m., so the market has not opened. Um, welcome, everybody. So we're going to talk about a few things today that's on the news. Uber finally makes makes profit. We, we covered Uber in previous episodes. Um, it's an interesting company. We'll talk about that. Pelosi visit to Taiwan. This is, a, this is a banger right here. I mean, to me, it just came out of nowhere, and I was following this pretty closely. Really interesting, really interesting, kind of dangerous too uh, subject we'll talk about. Uh, and then Walmart layoff. I mean, there's Walmart is just uh, one of the examples of companies that have that have laid off a whole bunch of people. And so we'll talk about what that means. All right. Um, anything else to add, Hari, before we start? Well, yeah, just um, you know, we we've. Uh... Like Becco said, this is our third podcast back, and uh, you know we we're trying to get grow the, the podcast again. So we'd appreciate it if you can uh, like the the videos, comment on them, and uh, subscribe if you haven't already. Uh, that would really help us out. Um, and uh, you know we'll have some more uh, interesting stuff coming up here in the next few weeks, uh, announcements wise. Um, but if you haven't joined our Slack channel um, or you have questions, you can email us at info at valueinvestor.org. Uh, we'd be happy to answer them. Or if you have any topics you'd like us to cover um, in the next streams, just let us know. Okay, great. Let's get started. Uber finally makes a profit. Um, talk us through that, Hari. So, you know, we've we've kind of, we, we had a good uh podcast, you know, early on talking about Lyft uh, and its business model. Uh, Uber has a very similar kind of model in terms of, uh, you know, how they they sell things. Lyft, however, is focused solely on rides, whereas Uber is doing more like food delivery and other things. So interestingly, you know, as the pandemic kind of let up, um, people started using Uber again. uh, And they've actually had a, a, you know, drivers flock to it. So this last quarter, they actually saw their revenue almost double um, or actually more than double, um, which is uh, to $8 billion, which is, you know, is impressive. Uh, And with gross bookings of almost $30 billion. Um, But what's kind of interesting about this is that they, um, they actually posted a gap loss uh, for the quarter. Um, 
And that is largely due to the um, accounting rules around owning lots of other marketable securities. Um, but they actually turned in a free cash flow profit of $380 million. Now, mind you, how much money has been poured into this business over the last 10 years to get them to the point where they actually turn in a free cash flow profit? Um, you know, they've invested, you know, 30 something billion dollars to get to this point. Um, but so a free cash flow profit of $380 million is not a, you know, it's not a lot. Um, and they still, you know, so this is an, you know, we, we talked about this from a, there's an accounting profit, which they have a negative accounting profit and an economic profit, which is their cash flow side. Um, but there's two things that are, I think that are interesting from this that, you know, as an investor, you should kind of pay attention to, because I don't think this is still a business that you would want to invest in, um, is that, uh, they consider their business asset light. Um, and that's what their CEO announced during the, the quarter. Um, and the irony of that is, is that, yes, it is an asset light business because your, your, your um, drivers you know, are driving their own cars and you're basically just connecting them with riders. Um, but the thing is, is that the reason they don't make any money is that they have a huge liability associated with ensuring each one of these ad hoc rides. And so they have to set aside a huge amount of their profit to protect against uh, insurance liabilities, which may happen a year, two years, three years down the line. Um, Just hold, hold, hold there for a second. This is, one of the, this is one thing that we talked about during the Lyft episode. And by the way, I want to correct myself. The episode that we talked about, the episode that I talked about earlier, we didn't really cover. We didn't cover Uber. We covered Lyft. Thanks for correcting me on that, Hari. So this... Yeah. This is this is where it gets interesting. If you, when we took a look at this, and I haven't, and to be honest, I haven't taken a look, I haven't looked at Lyft or Uber in a while. Um, but when we first took a look at this, one of the things that really stood out was the the insurance side of the business, how the liability associated with this is is pretty pretty enormous. So what you're saying, Hari, is Uber's balance sheet is is no different than Lyft's, and it sounds like it sounds like the the insurance side of the things is really kind of a big monster that they have to carry. Is that right? And yeah, they've always had a um, an insurance. Um, you know, insurance has been a huge part of it, and they've actually self-insured. They're not sending third parties, so they essentially just set aside money. Um, for payouts uh, related to these. And so, you know, like an, a $10 Uber ride, you know, the vast majority of the time, there's no problem with it. But then the driver gets into an accident, right? The other party can sue the the driver, but they actually sue, Lyft, sue Uber because they're driving under the Uber umbrella. Um, and so, you know, but what what to me was actually very interesting about this is they're, six month, the Q2 ending 2022, they actually post an $8 billion net income loss. And then when you actually look at all of the cash flow adjustments that they make, um, they have a almost $830 million in stock-based compensation, which I agree is not a cash, you know, thing. Um, 
but it's $830 million of essentially dilution that you as an investor are going to face, right? And so that's a, that's a big deal. Um, and then they had an unrealized loss on debt and equity securities net of $7.2 billion. Wow. So this is how you go from, you know, you're, you're essentially just sloshing around a bunch of cash. Can you tell, uh, can you talk about that last bit there? The Seven point something billion. Yeah, it's, they've, they're essentially just um, adjusting for um, their stock portfolio changing right during the quarter. And so when you look at the net income of 8.5, negative $8.5 billion, and then you say, well, we didn't actually lose that money. What ended up happening was it was the, our portfolio of uh, stocks were their, their, treasury, their treasury management, basically. Yeah, um, those were adjusted. And so in, in the old gap uh, accounting system, that wasn't accounted for. So your net income was actually more a lot more reflective of your cash flow um, because you're essentially trying to adjust for what's on your balance sheet went down. So you adjust it against your earnings and then now they have to adjust it against cash flow also. So when you when you really boil all of this down, right, that my takeaways from this is Uber is is not going to be consistently free cash flow positive. Um, I think for a long time, if ever, because they can make adjustments here and there to kind of make things look positive. They got the stock got a big bump, but the fundamental problem here, as we've always talked about, is um, what is their actual moat here, <clears throat> and can they actually charge? Uh, enough money to make an economic profit. And what they've done is they've cut a bunch of their incentives, their driver incentives and other things to make this profit happen. But what will end up happening is they're not going to get enough drivers in the next six months or 12 months if if the price is too low, right? And people aren't going to come to drive for them. Most drivers are only there for a couple of months and then they go find a job or something else because it's not worth it you know, for them to do that for long term. Um, and so that was the same thing we talked about with Lyft, right, is that they're either going to lower the price of the the, the rides or pay the drivers money to get them to come work for them or both. Um, and if they pull too hard on one of those levers, eventually, you know, the riders don't show up or the drivers don't show up. Um, so, so, you know, last week we talked about Facebook and network effects, right? They've tried to build up the network, but they have to keep pouring money into maintaining the network. Um, and I, th I think the end result of that network effect is going to be a it's not a it's not really a moat that they're creating. Right. They have a size that allows them to do these kind of things. But long term, I don't think this is going to be a I mean, they may squeak out a profit here and there, but it's not going to be a very profitable business. I wonder, um, just a couple of things come to my mind. I wonder why they chose to self-insure. I mean, I can, I, can, I can guess, but I would love to kind of dig into that. And then the second thing that makes me, at least in the short term, positive or bullish on, or, uh, on, on Uber and all these different companies is that maybe this is, this is sort of tying to the third point, which is the layoffs usually right when you when you like for example in houston 
when the oil price dips below fifty dollars or something like that, there's massive layoff in the oil and gas industry because it's just not profitable. Yeah. So what do we, what do people do? They go to work at restaurants or they do some temp job just to get them by until the oil price gets up back up and then you know the industry can absorb these people again. Perhaps, perhaps I'm just this is pure speculation. You know, when, when the market draws turn with you know unemployment number, um, maybe it'll be a boon for them because you know drivers will sign up and and maybe maybe that'll help. But in the short term, that's that's that you know it's. I want to I want to highlight that this is the short term kind of thing. Um, still, the the fundamental business model seems a little bit loose. Um, yeah, I agree. I yeah. agree with all your points. Yeah, and I I think you made you know several good things said several good things there because they're cyclical in nature related to the overall economy. They, maybe they can slash driver incentives now. But as the economy comes back and picks up again, right, I think they'd have to reintroduce those things. And so, um, you know, to get, you know, drivers into the door. So so I, I think it's always going to be this kind of cycle, right, where yeah. you're going to struggle to get drivers, you're going to struggle to get riders. Mm -hmm. And right now, maybe drivers are easier than getting riders, you know. Yeah. Just one more point before we move on to the next topic. What is the... Do you know the revenue mix from the actual rides versus Uber Eats? Because I remember when pandemic hit, Uber Eats was outpacing the actual ride yeah. business, and that was kind of a cash cow. Um, what do you know? So I I actually didn't look into the split, um, but I do know that the majority of the growth here came from people taking the rides. Um, and that the, uh, you know, because it had from last compared to last year was such a low amount. Um, so I don't expect that they're going to continue to see that kind of growth, yeah. um, going forward, um, in the, and I, I think we're actually at a point where Uber is, doesn't have a lot of room to grow, right. In terms of, uh, the size. Know, yeah. It, look, the, the whole original business model of like, Nobody's going to own a car. They're just going to take Uber everywhere. Uh, I mean, that's never going to happen, right? It, it's it's just not profitable to take, you know, spend $20, you know, if you live in a city of Houston just to go to work, right? Um, maybe once in a while, but it's mostly like we're going out to party or whatever and you don't want to have, yeah. uh, have a car with you. So mm -hmm. let's move on to the next topic. Pelosi visit Taiwan. Man, this was kind of, I mean, it was, it was like a, I don't know, to me, it felt like a movie. Uh, I mean, it has, before, I, what, what, do you have any thoughts on this? Well, I, I think the one, the interesting thing to me that I, I think was like, it kind of just came out of nowhere, right? That uh, she's visiting uh, Taiwan there was a lot of like speculation that it was just going to be an Asia visit and then Taiwan was included and then it was not. And then, and then, you know, I think like there were like hundreds of thousands of people watching the plane, like on <laughs> like the flight trackers, you know, yeah. just to see if she's actually going there. Right. Yeah. Um, but it's, I mean, the, obviously the visit itself to Taiwan is not what's the story, but the, the fact that China is, 
China's response to it, which has been, you know, they've done military exercises. I think last night, um, Houston time, they last night they shot missiles over, uh, you know, they didn't hit Taiwan, but they went over uh, Taiwan airspace and landed, you know, so they are, they are threatening, um, you know, military action here. Uh, all because we are trying to recognize Taiwan as a separate entity from China. Mm-hmm. Yeah, to me, I mean, if you look at the map of the exercise, it's basically like, a, I don't know, it feels, it looks like it's, um, they're preparing for, for invasion. It's like, a, if you look at the map of Taiwan and the, the area that Chinese Chinese Navy and the military is, you know, planning on the exercise. It's basically encircling the entire island, and that's yep. what they would do if they're, if you know, if they actually went to war. That's what they would do, right? It's to cut off all supplies coming into the country by complete, complete, you know, encapsulating them. Um, I guess what's the, I don't know, what's the takeaway or what's the, I guess is it just, you know, is it, is it just like. From where we stand, it's, you know, it's like this, you know, it's an important geopolitical thing. What is the, I don't know, what, what should we be looking out for? I feel like this is. So, you know, I, I, I think for the, for us as investors, I think the first thing to look at is Taiwan is an enormous supplier of chips and uh, semiconductors and things like that that we are using for everything, right? So if you remember at the beginning of the pandemic when we couldn't get, you know, chips, and I, I think it lasted almost two years in into the pandemic, there were cars that were sitting idle um, after had been manufactured that they were waiting on processors. There were, you know, com- uh, GPUs for like your computers. Ev- everything was being affected by that. I would say that if you look at it that way and then scale this up to by like a factor of a hundred, if Taiwan is, you know, is invaded or uh, anything of that sort happens, because for one thing, we're not going to be able to ship, uh, like there is no reserve capacity for us to make a lot of these things elsewhere. So companies like um, AMD, who rely heavily on uh, Taiwan are going to be significantly impacted. you know, the, the company TSMC is uh, the, the one that actually makes all of this stuff. Um, and, you know, we are trying to make these these fabs, which are these multi-billion dollar plants that make uh, chips, um, trying to make them in the United States. And it's not going to happen for like the next four or five years uh, to any like, you know, reasonable capacity. Um so, I mean, the, the seriousness of this is uh, pretty significant. On the flip side, you know, our reliance on China also means that China has a huge economic, uh, you know, it's not in China's economic interest to go, uh, you know, go to war with anyone because that means that they're they're not going to be able to ship their goods to those countries, right? I imagine you'd have some blockade or tariffs or something like that on uh, items from China. Um, so really, I mean, this is U.S.-China tensions as much as it is like 
you know, could have a huge impact on the entire economy since we rely so heavily on China for almost everything. Yeah, I want to I want to zoom in on the semiconductor side of the business here. It is so incredible that I mean, just to this is something that we talked about when we talk about like AMD or Nvidia in the previous episodes. They don't manufacture stuff domestically. What happens is, you know, they have this I mean, one of the most interesting podcasts that I've ever done with you, Hari, is Nvidia. And that is because the complicated nature of these supply chains are absolutely incredible i mean you yep. get like parts from this and that and then you assemble it here and then you ship it over to japan and then japan goes to it's it's just an insane level of of you know webbing is threading all these different countries if one breaks the whole thing collapses there isn't there isn't a lot of resistance or not resistance resilience baked into the system and big part of that is, is Taiwan. Taiwan is sort of, it's like this linchpin of all the semiconductor supply chain. If that gets on, if that screw gets, you know, loosened up a little, like it, it's just, it's just going to cause massive, massive ripple effect across the entire economy. That's where I'm focused on. And I think that's why the West and everybody else is so interested in protecting this economic interest. And, Right. Uh, you know, there's like this, and I believe when people say like veneer, you know, maybe veneer is kind of wrong term, but it's, you know, they're in support for democracy. That That's all like very true. But I think there's more than that. It's the economic. What's at stake is, is, is quite high when it comes to Taiwan. Um, it's, right. it's beyond, it's beyond democracy. It's, it's, it's much more, it gets down to, can we, can we like survive as, global economy um so i think that's that's really interesting to watch well i i think there's two things too that you know like the impact you know to almost everything your your smartphone your uh you know high-end servers all of those things will be hit uh by this kind of impact you know apple makes all of their uh devices on tmc fabs right so it, it you know and they actually pre-buy time on those fabs to make, you know, so that they have enough supply for their supply of phones and, and tablets and all of that stuff. Right. Which, and, you know, these are the kind of things that would have an impact on, you know, uh, us is that there is a known amount of like degradation and decay of, uh, of our devices. We, you know, replenish them. Like if, if you go to a war, you know, a war with someone like China may last years and, you know, that means you're going to have to build up your own supply of a lot of these things, right? So it, it's not a, you know, this is like a World War II kind of level uh, thing, right? In in terms of it, it would disrupt the entire economy of the world and so forth. So, um, yeah, I, I think what I would mostly say to anybody here, you know, to think about this is as... Americans as, uh, you know, under the Trump administration, there was a lot of, you know, kind of posturing with with China. They were actually imposed tariffs on China because of uh, and we actually saw supply chains kind of move to other countries, right, to Vietnam and other places. Um, to be honest with you, if, if, if we are thinking that China is going to make a move for Taiwan, we should have started that process of shifting supply chains uh, 
significantly away from China. Um, and, and I think the same is true for Taiwan, actually. We should be building up all of the capacity here in the U.S. Um, and, and forgetting whatever uh, reliance that we have on other places. Yeah. I mean, this, you're basically fighting. I mean, I think, I think that in principle is, is, um, is sound. The, the problem with that is you're fighting, like you're, you're trying to swim upstream when it comes to like all these labor costs in the last 30 years, that's exactly what happened. Right. I mean, this is, this is kind of the playbook of developed nation is that you outsource these like actual manufacturing to other countries where labor is cheap and then you keep services components in-house and that's and then you know a little you know something that requires a little bit more kind of white color kind of work yeah. going in the other direction is just, it's going to take a lot of momentum and a lot of push and something like this could do it and this sort of ties into the the other topic that we talked about in the previous episode of the the bill that's passed or that's about to pass. Um, yes. Yeah, so, yeah, I, I was actually mistaken. Thanks for bringing that up. It has not passed, but the um, and neither has the Inflation Reduction Act. They're still yeah. kicking around right now. Yeah. Um, but they're both expected to to pass at this point. Yeah. So just going back, just trying to yeah, just to finish my point, it is you know, it is incredibly difficult to swim upstream. And I think this is basically what we are called to do if something like this does happen. And as we've seen with the supply chain fragility, we need to build in more resilience. Yeah. And it's just, it's it's a very difficult thing to do because that's that's not been the playbook for the last 30, 40 years. So, I mean, maybe forever, really. Um, anyway, definitely something that we have to keep an eye on here. Let's move on to the next topic. Walmart layoff. So layoffs are happening. Um, yeah. And I, I think we had talked about this in the, uh, when we said, you know, at the beginning of a recession, you see, uh, you don't necessarily see job, uh, job reductions. Uh, and we've had a very tight labor market for, you know, at 3.6% post, you know, pandemic. Um, and now, I think we're starting to see the beginnings of some layoffs. Um, so you want to talk about the, you know, where Walmart is, is doing this? Yeah. Let's see. So yeah, unemployment rate sitting below 4%. When COVID hit, just to give you some context, when COVID hit, it peaked. The unemployment rate peaked above 14%. So we're, we're quite low you know, compared to the economic zeitgeist and the situation that we're in right now. But we're starting to see some cracks now. And I think most people that are watching this have probably seen headlines of companies laying, you know, announcing these big layoffs. Walmart is just the latest to do this. So I'm just going to list out some, some companies that already announced um, layoffs. So Walmart laying off 200 corporate employees. Oracle. Robinhood, Shopify, um, and some startup companies like Olive that raised a ton of money. Um, healthcare companies 
um, healthcare, healthcare systems are laying off people. Rivian, um, you know, the famous electric car maker. OpenSea, I mean, crypto is being decimated. Um, not just the coins themselves, but companies that operate in them. Yeah, so the list goes on and on, right? Twitter is laying off people. And then in addition to the layoffs, people are announcing, obviously, um, freeze in hiring. So this is coming, right? This is coming. So when people lose their job, this is when people really start to tighten their belt and austerity comes in. And once that kicks in, you're going to see the effects of, you know, self-imposed austerity reflected in the economic market, in the broader market, right? People are not going to be shopping more and things like that. So as we talked about in the earlier podcast, the demand destruction, I think we're going to see, see it, see it uh, more in the coming months. Yeah. And I, I think um, it's a good point to, to start looking at a lot of these companies are profitable. They have, you know, a, you know, they're very profitable like Walmart and Google and, um, and some that are not so much, but um, you know, like the Robin hoods and these that were never really a, you know, generating a huge amount of money uh, were laying off like 10, 20% of their workforce. Um, and so I, I think what you're going to start seeing is that this is going to start accelerating in the next quarter. And, you know, that list is going to grow to hundreds of businesses. Um, and, you know, the, the CEO of Google was actually saying that they had more employees than they actually had work at Google. And I don't know if that's going to end up being um, a, uh, you know, leading directly to layoffs, but they haven't announced anything. But this is in the last couple of days that they've kind of hinted at that stuff. So I think what we're going to start seeing is that this tight labor market will start easing a little bit. People will start pulling back on spending because they they suspect their job is going to go away. Uh, and then what we're going to see is that the uh, easing of inflation starts to happen there. Um, but I, I also thought it was really interesting that Walmart and Target both um, have ri a huge rise in inventories. They've both announced during their quarterly uh, reports, and they they were essentially saying that we you know we bought a lot of stuff that people were buying during the pandemic, and we have a bunch of overstock of that stuff, um, and can't get rid of it, um, and so they have a lot of like discounting that's going on right now uh, as a result of that. So I think it's going to be really interesting for for uh, you know the next two to three months, you're going to start seeing a huge shift in the, the labor force uh, away from, um, you know, like we're not going to be in hiring at all cost mode anymore, uh, which I, I think is actually unfortunately necessary at this point, as much pain as that's going to cause, because it's going to, uh, uh, it's going to lead to a lot slower um, uh, growth, uh, in the money, you know, in, in spending, which I think is necessary at this point. Yeah. Which makes it, you know, my mind jumps to, okay, everybody is talking about federal reserve pivot. <laughs> everybody has turned into a speculator, right? Yep. And like, you know, macroeconomist. <laughs> uh, I mean, 
But, you know, it's sort of unfortunate reality, but that's the world that we live in right now. So much of it is tied to this economic situation, macro situation. So it's important to kind of pay attention to it. Um, does this mean that inflation is going to come down and because we're in a recession, the pivot is going to happen like at the end of this year, you know, early next year? It sounds like the market is kind of pricing that in. If you look at kind of the bond market and, and other areas. Do you have a take on that, Hari? My my fear right now is that th this the inflationary cycle that we're seeing right now is being driven by, I think, a couple of things. One is oil prices have gone up significantly. Um, and that's like the input for almost everything that we use. Uh, and then the second one is that government spending has been insane, right? Like we are spending... Um, trillions of dollars that was not part of the economy. And this past week, we talked about the CHIPS Act, which I'm I'm fine with, the, uh, the actual part that goes to the CHIPS, but then there was research and development that was like $200 billion. And then there was this um, act that was actually uh, enacted here in the last week or so uh, about giving healthcare for veterans around burn pits which sounds, you know, great. I don't think anybody really opposed it, except they added an extra two hundred and fifty billion dollars of um, discretionary spending, which means basically they can use it for whatever they want uh, over time. Um, and so, what ended up happening is that you now have um, you have a bunch of money that's being required to be spent, right? I'm sorry, it's non-discretionary spending. So this is money that is part of this bill that has to be spent somewhere. And so, you know, you keep doing this over and over again and suddenly everybody's looking at it like we have so much extra cash and then it goes to fueling jobs that don't, you know, matter, right? Or it's being spent on, you know, uh, the bridges to nowhere and things like that. Uh, and that's how you create more inflation, right? Um, not to mention, you know, a deficit, right? In your In your budget. So, these are the kind of things that we have to get under control. And I, I, you know, you know, I know we're not a, you know, political, you know, podcast, but right. There is a, <clears throat> we're not a political podcast, but th these are the impacts that have, you know, consequences on our portfolios, right. Is inflation is being like, we're pouring gas into this, uh, onto this fire. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean the government spending is a is a problem, and I think I think something that when whenever something like this comes up, it becomes kind of contentious because it it obviously has a political tinge to it. I would just want to say that when we talk about political, you know, this government spending, I, I think it's important to acknowledge the good intentions that people have. Some of these things are very well intentioned, like. Yeah. Helping out veterans, you know, providing subsidies for onshoring semiconductor industries. All these are like really good things. It does have these downstream second order, third order effects that are that can be kind of detrimental to the economy. The wealth, the the, the health of the economy, the well functioning health of the economy. It almost feels like caffeine and and it's like caffeine, right? It, it's um, yep. 
once you have one cup of coffee, you need two, you need three, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, yeah, I just want to mention that because I think it's, I think it's very easy to paint the picture of the, these guys are like just trying to out, you know, out there to destroy the economy or whatever, right. Whatever people can say about the other party or whatever. It's not, um, I think it's important to recognize the, the, well, the good intentions. Yeah. All right. Um, I just want to, uh, there was a comment on the, uh, the stream, uh, from Jim Varney. Haha. I would like to see Central America be included in some of the supply chain restructuring, which is, which is a good point, right? We would, um, uh, we would want that, um, supply chain to kind of move towards, if you're in the United States to move towards, you know, more domestically closer, you know, partners. And we already have things like NAFTA and, uh, to protect some of that stuff. So I, I think that's actually a good, you know, comment that uh, relying on China is kind of a, um, a problem, but it doesn't have to necessarily be all domestic, right? We could actually move that stuff into uh, places closer to home uh, that we have more, you know, closer ties with. Yeah, it's a good point. We haven't really touched on Central America or South America. Um, Jim, we'd love to see you guys do another show on this kind of cash flow. Yeah, that could be a topic. Yeah, we'll definitely uh, uh, bring that up. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. the the question of Central America onshoring and then you know putting it in more of a Central America. I wonder if you if you could leave a comment on what kind of industries would make sense to bring it to Central America, given it sounds like you know a thing a thing or two about that. You know, maybe there is some I don't know, like a kind of a burning like a budding industry there uh, that could be interesting to look at. Yep. Uh, yeah, leave a comment if you can, Jim. All right, that's it for me. All right. Well, we're um, we're gonna be doing live streams every Thursday morning uh, uh, at six a.m. Central, seven Eastern, uh, going forward. Um, so, if you're, uh, we'd love to have you all come in if you're listening to this after the streams ended. But um, uh, if you are watching it afterwards, you know, please comment also on any thoughts that you had related to the, um, you know, to the supply chain stuff we talked about or um, any other topics, um, you know, discounted cash flow is a, is a great, uh, topic to always revisit. Um, we'll be happy to talk about that, uh, on the next, uh, next episode. Yeah. I just add to one more thing, just add to that. If you guys have companies, I know a lot of people watch our podcast to get the analysis companies. If you guys have companies that you want us to analyze, leave that in the comments. We'll take a look and do our best to cover them. Yeah, and I'll I'll plug one more thing for us. Uh, we have a blog uh, where we talk about various topics. Also, uh, the uh, blog.valueinvestor.org. Um, if you uh, can take it, uh, take a look at it, um, and you know, you know, we'll be publishing an article a couple of times a week. Uh, last time we talked, I talked about Carvana, which is a, a car rental or car. Uh, dealer uh, without any like people involved uh, and how a even a disruptive business like it has actually not shown 
a, an economic profit, which is a theme, uh, you know, that we've seen with companies like Uber and stuff like that. Uh, so uh, would love for you guys to check it out uh, and uh, interact with us here on the stream or uh, on YouTube or send us an email at info at valueinvestor.org. All right. Thanks so much, guys. I'll see you guys uh, next next week. All right. Thanks.